Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. You know, like I had to be able to read people fast and make a decision right away. Whether I think that person was a cop or an enemy or whatever it was. Again, when you're in the survival mode, it's sort of like, think of a, a soldier in a battlefield. When things happen to you, you have to react quickly and you have to make decision as you go and you cannot stop and think too much about it. Because if you do, then there's a chance there for you to be in more pain, for you to be wounded again. So you, you always on, on a constant move. And that's what I've learned very early on as a child. Hi, friends, and welcome back to At the End of the Tunnel. So if you've been listening to this podcast for the last few weeks, you may recall the fascinating conversation that I had with New York City police officer Edwin Raymond, who is of Haitian descent. And he told that story of how he began challenging the police quota system in New York and how one of his closest confidants during that really crazy time was another Haitian immigrant from his old neighborhood who he referred to as Buffett. Well, today I'm going to be talking to Buffett, whose real name is Jim St. Germain. And Jim has his own incredible story of showing up in America from Haiti at 10 years old and how he was expecting America to be a lot like that movie Home Alone. But where he was in Brooklyn, New York, it ended up being more like The Wire. And on top of that, Jim didn't speak any English. And literally on his first day in America... He got into a fight with one of the most notorious Crips in his neighborhood. So Jim had to learn the ways of the street very quickly. And the street life ended up getting Jim into a lot of legal trouble. But it was through the penal system that Jim found mentors and other people to help guide him toward becoming a pillar of his community and a role model for what's possible when you give a stone of hope to a young man who has none. He went on to complete a master's degree in public administration. He co-founded an organization called PLOT with Edwin Raymond. So PLOT stands for Preparing Leaders of Tomorrow, and it serves as a mentoring program for at-risk youth. Jim went on to work closely with Mayor Bloomberg and Governor Cuomo on various youth initiatives. He testified before Congress to advocate against youth incarceration, and he was even invited by President Obama to testify with Brian Stevenson of Just Mercy fame. Obama also recommended Jim's memoir about his life, which is called A Stone of Hope, on his annual reading list. I met Jim when he spoke at one of my Shine events in New York, and I've been a huge fan ever since. Then I read his book and I became a super fan. I mean, the stuff he had to overcome to be where he is today is monumental. And I'm so honored to share his story with you guys. And I'm sure you're going to be equally inspired when you see what he had to overcome 
to be the social justice activist and community leader that he's become today. And his book is phenomenal. So I hope you get a chance to read that. And without further ado, I introduce you to Mr. Jim St. Germain. Jim, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. As always, I like to start off these conversations by talking about childhood. I know you didn't have much of a childhood back in Haiti, (laughs) you know, because you started working when you were six years old. But if you can think back to your earliest memories as a kid and what your favorite toy or activity was, what, what would you say that would have been? Though I was forced to grow much faster than I wanted to because of poverty and um, growing up without my mother and my father's challenges, believe it or not, life in Haiti as a child was in many ways beautiful. And I remember some of my favorite things were playing soccer. We used to play soccer with this sort of like makeshift soccer ball we made, right? We wrapped, we took a bunch of plastic paper bags and we'll wrap like rubber bands around them and we'll place a balloon on the inside and then we'll wrap more plastic on the outside. And out of that, we'd make a soccer ball and we'll play among us as kids around the neighborhood. And we loved playing in the rain, especially sliding in the mud and the water. We thought that we were like, sort of like mimicking these soccer players we loved as kids, the Ronaldo, the Ronaldinho's of the world all these Brazilian soccer players, which Haitians love. So soccer was one of the main things for me. And I also love flying kites. Everything we use in Haiti as toys, we have to make on our own because they're not readily available. You can't just walk into a store and just purchase anything you want like hair. So you had to be resourceful. And so I remember flying kites. We would make kites and we would place like a blade at the end, trying to cut each other's kites off. That was like the battle. Kite wars. Um, Yeah, kite wars. And we also loved, um, I loved throwing rocks at the trees to bring down mangoes because that was like one of the main source of food for us. Just running the neighborhood as young boys, barefoot, chasing dogs and different things. Uh, it was really, really fun. And, it, and we, we, we felt really free. Do you remember personally making one of those soccer balls? Yes, I do. There was this sense of accomplishment that you get by being able to create your own distraction in a way, knowing that what you put in is what you get out. And I remember going around collecting trash, plastic bags. I would pull up plastic bags from different areas and bring all of them together. And we would sit around and start creating these soccer balls to play with. One of the things I remember doing was I would like color the outside as if it was a real soccer ball. And I would put like different names on it, names of like perhaps I inspired to, right? For example, being Haitian, we have like strong historical sort of like pride as being the first black independent nation on earth. And so we would write like 1804 on the soccer ball. I I did. 1804 was the day Haiti became independence from France. That's when we overthrew the French colonization, colonized sort of like government. So I would place different messages on the soccer ball with like a marker or sometimes with a crayon, whatever I can find as a way of trying to distinguish myself from the other, other kids who were making their own soccer ball. 
<laughs> I love that. Talk about your early, you got your first job at six years old. What, what was that? I was pretty much in running errands. I was like that kid in the neighborhood that at a very young age, I realized that my father did not have the means to support us. I've always been this kid that's comfortable in different places. I was always like this survivor and I knew how to adapt to different circumstances. I've always been that way, even as a kid. So once I realized my dad couldn't take care of us, I would frequent my other family members' houses and neighbors' houses and see if they needed anything done, whether it was running food to an elderly person or sweeping a backyard or carrying water from the wells to the house so we can cook the food or we can do the laundry or hanging up clothes on the tree so the clothes can dry. I was just this hustler type of kid, but I enjoyed it because I felt free. I felt like a free bird being able to work for what I needed. So there was always been a sense of earned and not given due to circumstances that kind of stayed with me. That was kind of cultural too, though, right? I mean, were you the only kid doing that or was a lot of kids doing that? Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, You'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. It was cultural in a sense because the other thing we had in Haiti that was beautiful was it's like a big family. Everybody knows each other. So literally, if you do something wrong, the woman 20 minutes down the road can, can reprimand you, right? She can discipline you. And when you get home, there's no question asked. Your parents won't even get upset that someone down the road reprimands you, right? That's just a given. So we were all helping each other to make the best out of what we had if that makes sense. So if, if, if one person had rice, the other person had beans, the other person had oil, and the other person had charcoal, then we would all come together and make a meal so everybody can eat. So there was this always sense of that you have to rely on each other in order to survive. So these, this sort of like rug individualism that I encountered when I came to the States was completely new to me, completely mm-hmm. different. 
What was your affiliation with the tap tap scene in uh, Haiti? Oh man, that was great because that's how I, that's, that became one of my main hustles, right? So the top top, I don't know for those of you who are listening is the transportation system in Haiti is really non-existent unless you have like these pickup truck that was then tricked out and designed to be a taxi. And in Haiti, we call them top top where you picking up passengers along the road dropping them off as you go. And there was a person that would usually collect the money as the driver drives. And at some point I became the person collecting the money. And so I'm like at six seven, years eight. old. Oh, six seven years or eight old. years old. Six, yeah, around that age, not too far. I am, you know, I'm in the back of a, of a truck, of a top top collecting money. And, you know, and then I would, I would earn myself a meal and I would earn myself a few bucks. But most importantly, I would get to make a lot of connections and see the sort of like flow of human capital, right? And see what people get to do on a regular basis. And then I, I'll also, from that, I'll learn about how to fix cars because the top top would break down often because the roads in Haiti are terrible. And, and the top tops usually are old and it's usually how people make ends meet. So often we would drive the top top throughout the day and then it would, it would need to be fixed at night. And in which case I would stay around to pass the guy, the tool and be the one that's like his aid. And so I've learned a lot about cars when I was a kid, just by doing that alone. Was there a certain tap tap driver that kind of took you under his wings and sort of mentored you through that whole process? Yep. His name was Jocelyn and he was the husband of a cousin of mine. He lived literally right next to us. And I would see him get up in the morning, you know, wash the car, prepare and then leave. I would always try to get him to take me with him so I can earn some money. But he would be like, hey, you're too young. Get out of here before your father come in, <laughs> come in, um, harass me. You need to go to school. You need to go to school. And then he realized that my father couldn't afford to put us in school. So we were in and out of school. Because in Haiti, there is little public education. You have to pay for it. And so if you don't have the money, you don't have the education. So my dad would hire like his friend who would come around and tutor us. But when Jocelyn realized that I wasn't going to school as I was supposed to, he then one day said, you know what, maybe you can come with me and this would be your education. I said to him, how, how can working on a top top be my education? He said, well, you're going to be collecting money. So that's math. You're going to be dealing with people. So that's socialization. You're going to have to learn how to read body language. You're going to have to learn about cars. You're going to have to learn about the route we take. He said, if you ask me, that's the best education you can get. And you're going to learn how to earn your own. So we sort of like replaced my hustle working on the tap tap with the education I was supposed to get. What were some of the things you learned about people working on the tap tap at seven, eight years old? When people are in survival mode, they are different. I think their brains are wired differently than when they have the basic things available to them. I think that also people need each other to actually get ahead as selfish as we can be as humans one of the things i've learned working on a top top is that we need each other and without each other none of the things we fight and struggle and work for and kill for even matters without having other people around to either enjoy it with you or experience the process with you I've also learned that the very same sort of like strength and tenacity and passion that 
made my country the first black independent nation on earth can also be a part of our demise and struggles. I learned that Haitians are very impatient with progress and they want it when they want it, how they want it. And I've also learned that as a kid, there's something about people that respect when you are willing to earn your own and when you are not afraid to get to know people. Something about people that naturally makes them want to give you more and want to teach you when they see that you are insatiably curious. And so once I start to pick up those things, then I start to apply them in different parts of life. One more thing I learned very, very early on was the ability to see the bigger picture, meaning that there were times where I would collect money in the back of the car and I could have easily placed two bucks in my pocket, right? But the idea of being caught and losing long-term opportunities to earn more at the expense of like a short-term gain was not worth it. That the relationship I had built with Jocelyn was worth more than the extra bucks I could have pocketed. And that is something that has worked for me till this day. And it's something that I'm trying to instill in my son and the young people I work with. Like, hey, man, that the ability to eat today, which I can understand, especially when you're hungry, is important. But if you can delay gratification for a moment to focus on the bigger picture and build trust with the individuals you're trying to eat with, that is worth more than anything materialistic you can possibly have, those connections and that trust. So that is one of the things I learned, believe it or not, at a very early age, because I had to. I didn't have the luxury of being a, just a kid. I had to grow fast. So then you had this basically street education. You're working, sounds like, pretty much full time from age six until around 10 years old. And then what were the circumstances in which you came to America? Well, my grandparents lived in the States before I was born. My grandfather was a merchant. He was a butcher. And his job as a, when he was younger, he would buy cows in bulk and then kill them and sell the meat. And that was big business in Haiti. That That's like a, a pristine kind of business to have in Haiti. So he was always a guy that had a little bit more than the average person. And, you know, they moved here in the 70s as a wave of like those Haitian immigrants that came through thanks to Senator Ted Kennedy. Actually, interestingly enough, one of the senators from Massachusetts who pushed for immigration sort of like leverage not only for white Europeans but for other people coming from like the Caribbean he was really big on that and so my grandparents were a part of that wave of Haitians coming over a lot of them were also leaving to escape Papa Doc's brutal dictator regime which controlled Haiti for almost 70 years and so when my grandparents got here they filed for their kids to join them and the process takes so long, especially when you're from a black country like Haiti, that by the time my parents got their, got their call and their papers, we were already born. We were already like, I was already about almost seven years old. 
So then naturally when the parents get their visas, the kids are also a part of that. And so that's how we ended up having the opportunity to come to the States to join my grandparents. And we were delighted because to us, the vision we had of America was strictly from movies, particularly this movie Home Alone with Kevin. How did you get a copy of Home Alone down in Haiti? Where did that come from? I didn't have a TV, but every now and then there was one or two family or so that had like a little TV with like an antenna that was made out of a hanger, a metal hanger, mm-hmm. right? And we all <laughs> would congregate around that one television in the whole neighborhood to watch whatever we had to watch. And we only had one hour because that's how long we had the electricity for. So most of the time it was soccer because that's what we love. But every now and then we would have movie nights and I don't know how they got a hold of Home Alone, but I remember arguing with my siblings like, man, can you believe with all the struggle and pain and poverty and stuff we've been through, once we get to heaven, which is what we thought the US were, the hardest job we're going to have is keeping Joe Pesci out of our $2 million home. So all, you, all your soccer mates were actually impressed that you were going to America. You were about to have this new life and you, you got saved. Man, it's insane. It's like, literally, it's like going to heaven. That's what you think it is. Yeah. And once you get that call, that opportunity, then everyone else starts to rely on you. You become the sort of like the future that's going to reach back and give back to those individuals. It's like a well-known thing in an immigrant sort of like life, migrating to the U.S. If you ask any immigrants, they will tell you this, right? It's like once you get that call, you may be going to the U.S., then it's almost expected that you're going to come here to the land of opportunities. You're going to grab all the riches and you're just going to take money off of the tree and then you're going to send it back home to help your people. (laughs) And instead of finding Home Alone, you found Man, the wire. I got the wire. I got the wire, <laughs> brother. I got dropped in the ghetto, and I was like, "What the heck is going on here? Who lied to me?" So you got tested almost immediately, literally, when you got out of the car from the airport. Talk a little bit about that. We got out the taxi, and as I was walking in, into the building, first of all, there's this gigantic building, right now, mind you. As a kid, to me, Haiti was so big, but truly Haiti is so small. I mean, I go back there now, I'm like, I can't believe how small this place is. When I was a kid, before coming, I had never seen a building that was more than maybe two stories, a house that was more than two stories. So when we pulled up in front of this gigantic pre-World War II crazy brick building with hundreds of apartments, I turned to my grandfather and I said, wow, what a big house you have. And he laughed, and then we went into the building, and in front of the building, there's a group of kids smoking weed, listening to music, and just chilling. And then in the hallway, there's another group of kids playing dice. And I got the ice grill as soon as we got out the car, right? Because we, we, we were what you call a just come. And so the kids were already eyeing us, and I already can tell, like, man, this is going to be much different than Home Alone. I didn't see no white picket fence, you know, <laughs> no dogs and the clean. No front yard. No, 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 no grass, none of that stuff, man. Just, just pissy elevators and canned foods and government cheese and roaches and rats and, and struggles. And that was, that, that was what I came into. And then on top of that, You come from a place where everyone looks like you and everyone speaks like you and everyone is you to a place now where the whole world lives here. And all of a sudden now, I'm not just a boy anymore, but I'm a black boy, right? Prior to coming to the States, I was just a boy. Now I'm in the States, I'm a black boy. 
and I don't even understand the history of this place that I'm in. All I know is that as soon as I stepped out the taxi, shit got real. You were in a Crip neighborhood and you didn't speak any English. Nope. You spoke what, Creole? Yeah, Creole and French. And as a matter of fact, all I knew then was I don't speak English. That's all I knew. I would People would talk to me and I'd be like, I don't speak English. And they'd be like, well, you just say you don't speak English, so you do speak English. <laughs> but that's all I knew. I, I really did not speak English, you know. And I had to learn fast. Even that, I had to, it, it was, the learning curve was so brutal, right? Because there was no luxury to trying to take your time and learning because remember in this environment, any mistakes, right? Your inability to read someone's body language, understand someone, to respect someone in a way that they should be respected. Any challenges with that can cost you a lot. I mean, physically cost you so I had to build the car as I was riding it, if that makes sense. How was the street code that you discovered in America different from the one that was in Haiti growing up? Well, in Haiti, the stakes are higher immediately. In Haiti, you can get into a fight as boys do and then walk away and then tomorrow you make up, right? Like you get over it. Here, now you're talking about there was guns involved, there's drugs involved, there's police involved. There was race involved. There was different ethnicities involved. There's an entire system waiting for you to mess up to make you pay for it. Whereas in Haiti, everybody looked out for each other. And even if you did something wrong, it would be handled by the community. Your fate wasn't in a complete stranger's hands who did not want to see you do well. And so the stakes just became really high immediately. Again, no time to really learn it. You just had to be ready for it. And so the street code was much different because, again, the prices for not heeding to those codes can cost you your life. Mm -hmm. And when you go from Haiti to now thinking about your immediate and physical safety all the time, it's hard for the brain to pay attention to the other things that you need as a kid. And in some ways, growing up with my mother, in a weird way, helped me a lot in the streets in Brooklyn, because I didn't grow up with warmth and love and sensitivity. And I, I didn't know those things. They, they didn't exist in my world. My mom was gone, and my dad grew with an iron fist, and he was a tough guy, and he was physically abusive. And so when I got here, in some ways, I was primed to be violent and to be tough and to be cold. So that wasn't hard for me at all. I was able to turn that on right away as soon as I, as I learned the uh, codes. Yeah, I want to talk more about that. But before we get into that, tell me a little bit. You had this really interesting realization about how Americans, particularly kids, treat food and how that's different from in Haiti in school. Talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, in Haiti, food was a luxury for me. Basic food was a luxury. Yeah, I mean, there were days we would wake up and we didn't know where our next meals were coming from. I remember one particular day, we got up and there was no food. And I remember my dad just sitting in front of the house with us and we were just all lying next to him. And it was this weird feeling. I was a kid. I didn't really understand what to do about it and why this was even possible. But I remember just looking into my father's eyes and he was hungry, we were hungry and he had no 
autonomy to help us. And that was painful. That was painful. And there were times where if you had one meal for the day, you, you were lucky. And if it wasn't mango season, then things really got tougher, right? And, you know, there are times I would walk around, look on the ground to find, like, hopefully I, I find, like, a piece of, like, bread or a piece of cookie someone dropped. I remember one day in particular that I was hungry and I couldn't find any food. And I started just walking around looking. And I found, like, a little chocolate chip, piece of chocolate chip cookie somewhere on the floor. And the ants were all over it. And I picked it up and I smacked the ants away. And I was just like, man, you guys, we're going to have to fight for this one. You know, I won that battle. But, yeah, man, it was tough. We had no money. My, my dad did not have work. Most One of the main challenges we have in Haiti is there is no work. Most of the population is unemployed and people have to create their own hustles. And if you didn't have a family in the States that sent back a few dollars for you, then you were kind of stuck. There were times where we had to wait for my grandparents to send us something. Speaking of, when I get off this call with you, I'm going ahead into the place to go send my mother some money and my other siblings some money right now because they're, they're waiting on it. But that was the norm. And then you saw what was happening in the cafeteria. Yeah, and then I came here. I came here and I saw all of a sudden kids had food in school, right? Thanks to the Black Panthers. Kids had food in school and kids went eat the food. And, you know, they would get like these circle pepperoni pizza and peanut butter jelly sandwiches. And, and it was just available everywhere. And kids were just throwing them in the garbage. And I was like, holy crap, this is insane. How can just a three-hour flight from here, there's no food? And then now I'm in a place where kids are throwing food away. By the way, those kids were throwing the food away, not because they weren't hungry, because of social pressures, mm -hmm. right? Because if you eat that food, then it says that you're poor. And who wants to be poor among other kids, even though all of us were poor? And believe it or not, even though I knew what it was like not to have kids, I started to buy into that social pressure too. I would act like I didn't want the food, right? Even though I was secretly hungry. So there are times I would take the pizza, fold it in half, put it in my pocket and go to the restroom to eat it because I didn't want the kids to see me eating it and then they would know that I'm poor. What did you mean when you said society makes kids pay twice for being poor? I think that being poor in the United States especially is costly. I mean, think about it. Like poverty is the greatest, I think, enemy we have when it comes to justice in this country. Most of the challenges we have is really because of class and poverty, because we live in an ultra-capitalistic society. Now, it just happens that you cannot separate capitalism from racism. Mm -hmm. So you, when, when you hit poverty, it goes right along with race, right? Because why does racism exist? Because it's a system in how you prioritize power dynamics. So those who are usually at the bottom of that system looks like me and you, and those at the top looks white. The poorer you are, the less power you have in this society. Less options you have, less power, less control over your own affairs, less control over your health care, the food you eat, the place you live, like you have no control. And so you don't only pay for being poor by being poor, but you actually are punished on top of it on a regular basis because you're poor. Even if you think about the way we pay taxes here, the richer you are, the more control you have over how you pay taxes. The poorer you are, the least control you have over that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the system is designed by those with those power and those resources. And did you realize that when you were a kid, though, when you were like 11, 12 years old? Not at all. I knew something was wrong. And that's one of the blessings I've had. I've always been a, an intuitive and gifted kid. I knew something was wrong. I knew that the ghetto which I came into was not a natural phenomenon. 
I felt it, I could see it, but I didn't have quite the words and the education to label it. I didn't have the history available to me like I do now. So I could not pinpoint it, but I knew in my soul that this was not normal. Because the other thing I've had here is America is the only country I've been to where you can have the most amount of wealth literally staring at object poverty in the face. The difference in Haiti is that we, most of us did not have anything. So we all were the same. So in some ways, there was no one to look at, to blame, to be jealous of. Whereas here, you can have insane wealth staring at insane poverty all within like two blocks. So once I saw that, I was like, something is not quite right. Because I grew up in Crown Heights and right across the street from us were the Orthodox Jewish community, which was a completely different world. And so I was like, wait, how come these people get to have so much control over their own affairs and everything else, but we don't? So I already knew then something was not quite right, but I just did not have the words and the education and the term terminology to, to sort of like label that inequality and that, that, that unfairness. From reading your, your story, you either were a hothead or you became a hothead. It was almost like you were an urban gladiator when you came to, to Crown Heights and you were literally, I lost count of how many fights you'd gotten into. It seems like you were fighting at least once every few days. Yeah, I think I had some inclination in me or, I don't know, maybe I had predilection for violence in some ways because that's what I knew as a kid. That's what I saw. My dad, as I said, unfortunately was a violent guy. It sounded like you understood the sort of street code and you knew that if you were going to behave like prey, you would be preyed upon. So you had to be the predator or at least give the impression that you were the predator in order to survive. It was a survival mechanism. 100%. Like what I realized right away was, okay, there is no in between here. There's no sweet spot. Either you were the one doing it or it was being done to you. And one thing I've always been good at is not allowing things to be done to me. And so it's a terrible position to be in as a kid, especially when you have a system that doesn't even recognize that these are the decisions you have to make. So you're literally negotiating spaces every single chance you get, right? Like, do I make a left on that corner or right? Because if I make a left, I may get jumped over there. If I make a right, the cops may snatch me up. What do I do, right? Do I buy one chicken wings and french fries or just two wings? Do I hang out with this clique because I get more protection or that one because that one would lead me to less trouble? These are the decisions I had to make constantly as a kid. And so I realized like, man, you know what? I have to be tough in this environment. You can't show weakness. For example, if one kid sees another kid bully you and punk you, that's it. You become the punching bag now. And once I quickly realized that, I was like, oh, there's no way I'm going to become that. So instead, I was the one doing that to other kids as a way. And I've always had a moral compass, to be fair. I've always tried not to hurt people who did not do anything to me. But, you know, I wasn't always successful at that because, again, I was a kid and there was a lot of peer pressure and it was survival of, of the fittest. And you also had a brother named Butter. So Yeah, I mean, Butter. Well, talk about why he why he was called Butter. Because <laughs> he was 
he was called butter because he was the opposite of me. He was soft right. and gentle and, you know, he was the type, if you walk up to him and say, hey, man, can I have a dollar? And he had one dollar and he would give it to you. Well, I would run over to him and snatch his hand and said, no, you don't give away a dollar. Because once you give that dollar to that one kid, now every kid thinks they can come take a dollar from you. I already knew that intuitively, whereas he wasn't aware of it, right? Because he was just this gentle kid. I was sort of like the protector in some ways for him. I was really good at re reading the streets. I was good at reading people, which I'm still very good at. It's one of my talents. I can meet someone within the first 90 seconds and know exactly where that person fits in my life. Was that from the tap tap experience or was that even before that? That was partly the tap tap experience, but then it was enhanced even more so when I got here to the States, because again, my safety rely on that. You know, like I had to be able to read people fast and make a decision right away. Whether I think that person was a cop or an enemy or whatever it was. Again, when you're in the survival mode, it's sort of like, like think of a, a soldier in a battlefield. When things happen to you, you have to react quickly and you have to make decision as you go and you cannot stop and think too much about it. Because if you do, then there's a chance there for you to be um, in more pain, for you to be wounded again. So you, you always on, on a constant move. And that's what I've learned very early on as a child. You had a nickname, Buff or Buffett. Talk about why they called you Buffett. There was this spot on my block. We, we called it back then. We called it the Jewish Steps. If you go to Crown Heights, you just say the Jewish Steps. Everyone knows what you're talking about. But really, what it was is we used to hang out in front of a synagogue. And we give it the name, the Jewish Step, because we didn't know it was a synagogue. We didn't know anything. We would hang out on the Jewish Steps. And sometimes I love hanging out with the older dudes. I've always been attracted to, like, older people, right? Because I, was, I grew up so fast where kids my age could not keep up with me. So I hang around a lot. When I was 14, I would hang out with the dudes that were in their 20s and 30s. And it was one of the dudes that I look up to. His name was Frankie. He was this very successful, like, builder. He used, to, he used to buy homes and fix them and sell them back. And he had, like, a clean Mercedes Benz, and he had, like, Rolex watches. And I'm talking about, you know, early 2000s. He had all the things that Jay-Z was rhyming about, right? So I look up to this dude. And I was a hustler. I would do different things. And one day he walked up to me. He said, man, you know who you remind me of? I said, who? He said, you remind me of Warren Buffett. He said, yeah, I think you're going to be a millionaire one day. Because you just have to stay in you. I can see it. And I was like, man, who the heck is Warren Buffett? He said, man, you don't know Warren Buffett? That dude is a true G, man. Like, those dudes, they know how to steal. You know, they're still the proper way. It's still through the market and the system. I had no clue what he was talking about. And I did some research and I realized Warren Buffett was like a 70-something-year-old white guy from Omaha, Nebraska. who was worth like a ton of money. And from then on, I, the name kind of stuck with me. And everybody in, in my neighborhood starts to call me Buffett. Mm. And that's how the name came a part of my life. And, you know, in the, in the hood, we all have aliases anyway. So it was like perfect. And on top of fighting almost all the time, you were also selling drugs and you also had legit, you had legal jobs too. I've always had these different hustles and I've never viewed myself necessarily as like a drug dealer in a sense because, geez, I was selling weed, which is on the damn stock market today. Rich white kids in Colorado making a ton of money off of this very same thing that 
hundreds of thousands of us were put in prison for. But, you know, I worked in a dry cleaner. I worked at a corner store. I worked at a supermarket. I shoveled snow. I worked for the Hasidic Jews. I worked removing garbage from the building that I lived in. I mean, there wasn't a hustle that I did not do, including selling weed and eventually, sadly, got into selling crack for a brief period of time because my next door neighbor gave me an opportunity to make some money and I took it. And so, you know, yes, I have always been this hustling type of kid, but that's truly because I had to. I didn't have the luxury not to hustle. There was this mantra where I came from where we would say you eat what you hunt. Talk about some of the rules of the drug game in terms of where you kept it on you, because you kept having these run-ins with cops, but you kind of knew how to navigate that. And then there was also variances in how much you would charge depending on where you were in the city and all of that stuff. The number one thing is, you know, you don't want to have it on you, right? So ideally, let's say that we used to call ourselves like corner boys, right? So in the corner is where you stand because that's where you're going to see all the traffic. So you get to see who's coming the cop or who's not. But when you're standing on a corner, one of the things you don't want to do is have anything on you. So you would have it under like a trash can or you have it in a mailbox, right? Someone is coming to buy weed from you, tell them, okay, you kind of nod at them saying, meet me in the building. So if the cops ever roll up on you, which they did often, I wouldn't have anything on me. You know, the thing would be stashed somewhere else. And if it's stashed somewhere else, even if they find it, then how can they say that it belongs to me? I would just lose the product instead of losing the product and getting arrested. You know, we would stash things in like, you know, your socks. If you had long hair, you can put it under your dreads. I'm giving too much away. Uh, now, like, the hustlers ain't gonna like this. <laughs> you know, you'll stash it in the bush, right? They're just different ways. And the other thing is, if we were in in the West 4th area in Manhattan, we knew that the white folks buying there, what they did not want is to be seen with us. And they were willing to pay whatever price to not be seen with us. And we knew that. So therefore, what would go for 10 in my neighborhood would go for 20 you know, in the village. And you would take your time giving them change. 100%. Because <laughs> <laughs> you knew they were going to run off. <laughs> exactly. And the risk, you know, the risk was also higher, right? Because now right. I don't know who's a cop and who's not. In my neighborhood, right. I know who's got cop because we're all black, right? So if there's a, a white guy show up with a clean haircut, we're already like, okay, who the heck is you? Whereas in the village, you know, there's a ton of white guy with clean haircuts. So the risks were higher, so we knew that the reward also had to be higher. We also did the same thing, like the Hasidic Jewish kids. You know, they weren't supposed to be seen with us at all for religious reason and all sorts of reason, and we knew that. So therefore, if they come buy something, they'll give you 20, you give them a nick, which costs five bucks, but you knew that the kid didn't know much about it. The kid just wanted the damn thing and not to be seen with you. So also, there are times where you would sell them your the product that wasn't selling that was the least favorite you give it to them because they don't know jack and they they don't know how to get high anyway so they're probably going to be high regardless of what you give them whether it's oregano or actual weed so you know there were all sorts of like dumb stuff that we did to get by including like there were times you would sell soap to people right they would think that it's crack cocaine but there would be soap and you had to also make sure that you were doing it in neighborhoods where people didn't know you 
So there was just so many different elements to what it was like. And by the way, the game has changed so much now. I mean, geez, people deliver weed on like online. That's crazy, right? To think of like you can go online. Like these are things that I couldn't, I can't fathom when I was a young kid in the street. You were only like 13, 14 years old when all of this was happening, and you were able to successfully evade arrest, although you, you got stopped a lot and frisked a lot. There's one occasion where you had a knife on you, apparently, and your neighbor was kind enough to snatch it up before the cops saw it and all of that. But then you got to a situation where you couldn't evade it. Can you talk about that? It was a Saturday afternoon. And usually I would stay up all night hustling, trying to make money because that was the best time to hustle at night. So I came out that day. I came out a little bit late because I was out all night and I had the product stash. So I pulled out the chair on the bike and then I placed the product inside of that hole and placed the seat back on it. And I would ride the bike around, right? And apparently that day someone saw me doing that. And told the cops. So here I am riding down the block. I pulled up in front of this building where I usually hang out. And all of a sudden, there's these cops' cars screeching down the block, coming the wrong way. Cops screeched out, jumped out, guns out, and like, get the heck on the wall. And they just came and snatched me up. They went straight to the bike seat, pulled out the weed. And I had like 350 bucks on me. They took that money. And I was arrested, and this was the time where the judge was like, you know what, this is it, man, this is it, buddy. You, you've had too many of these instances. You've had enough. And that's when I was first sentenced to 12 months in the juvenile justice system. And where did they put you? At first, you know, you go through orientation, which is like some place that's called Spofford. It's, not, it's no longer in existence, but it's a place that you might have heard in like a lot of rap songs from artists from um, New York City. If you were a kid from New York who's ever been in trouble, you've been to Swafford. Now it's talked about it, and Tyson was there, and Fat like everybody. That's where I went for the first week, and then eventually, uh, as time progress, you move along to different facilities. So you go from the most restricted to the least restricted based on your behavior. And so eventually from Swafford, I went to Beach House, which was what was known as a non-secure detention facility. And then from there, I got accepted to Boys Town, which was a national organization that helps kids and families. And when I got to Boys Town, short-term program, I was waiting for arraignment, waiting for my trial to see what was going to happen with me, whether I was going to get sentenced or go back home. And... I ended up being sentenced, and in a weird way, in a perverse way, it was one of the best things that happened in my life because it kind of saved me due to the program that I got accepted to and the people that I met along that journey who just really saw something special in me that I couldn't see in myself at the time. That kind of then became the second part of my journey, which got me to where I am today. Leading up to your stint at Boys Town, you had a court-appointed attorney who notoriously has horrible reputations, but yours looks like it was a guardian angel. 
And a lot of other people, honestly, along the way, Mr. Walton and people coming in and out of your life, it almost, in hindsight, it almost feels like you were being protected the entire way. And I'm curious, at that age, were you able to recognize any of that protection? I was, and something in me yearned for it, even though I would push it away, which is very much in line with what a young man like myself experienced. Usually when you, when you grow up without a loving parent, which in this case was my mother, there's this natural inclination to want to be loved and be cared for and be accepted and be valued to experience warmth and love and humanity. Um, and I didn't have much of that. And a lot of the people I met going through the system had that and they were willing to share that with me. And a part of me knew I needed it and it felt good, but another side of me pushed it away as a defense mechanism because I didn't trust it. I think that when you grow up without your mother, the idea of trusting another adult becomes that much more difficult because you've been let down by the person who was supposed to love you the most, whether right or wrong. And so I would push a lot of these people away at first, but a few of them refused to give up. And sometimes I would push them away just to see if they would give up because I expected them to give up. And many of them would refuse to give up. They would continue to come back. And when I lashed out at them, they would still find ways to give me a book or have a conversation with me or give me some leeway. And the part of me that loved it start to then make more space for that love and that acceptance and that level of visibility. And I was now being rewarded for trying to do the right thing, which was also kind of new. It was different from what I knew from the streets. And so I also had to reassign in some ways my value system and start to view different things as valuable rather than the things I thought were valuable prior to coming in contact with some of these individuals. And to be quite honest, like to me, my memoir, the book is really about those people. It's actually a trick in my mind. When I speak to someone who read the book, when they bring this question up, when they bring the people who are in my life up in a prominent way, that usually tells me a lot about that person and how they read the book because that's what the book is really about to me. It's about the people who come into our lives when we need them the most. It's not necessarily about my journey. At least that's not what I want to believe. And I wanted to create more of those people or I wanted to encourage those people by writing this book to let them know that, yes, you may plant seeds. And like farmers, you may plant a seed and don't get to see it grow. You may not even get to harvest it. But it doesn't mean that the seed is not growing. We got to continue to plant these seeds as people. And regardless of who we are, our color, background, and uh, socioeconomic status, every time we give to someone else, it increases. That person then gives to someone else and it becomes like a domino effect. And that was really one of my biggest purpose for writing this memoir. I thought that putting my story out there, being able to embarrass myself and talk about my insecurities, my challenges, all the things that I've done wrong as a kid. You know, that wasn't an easy decision, but I think that the greatest gift I can give to the next generation was my story. I think if you have 
a story to dissect and learn from rather than making your own mistakes. Because for a lot of us, where I'm from, a second chance is a first chance. We don't always get a second. And so it's critical and important that we learn from other people's mistakes rather than our own. Because we don't have the luxury of having the cushion of a system that's going to treat us fairly and that's going to um, help us move forward when we messed up. Sometimes one mess up literally marks us forever. I don't know much about the correction system and how it all works, but it, it seems like this Boys Town organization. I think the key word is that you just use the word correction to me. Corrections means you're trying to correct something. This system we're talking about, that's not its goal. It's not correcting anything. So even when we talk about the system itself and what it's called, even in the name, you can already find the challenges and the problems because the correction system we have is not correcting anything. If anything, right. it's churning out more and more and more of the issues. I think everybody agrees. And even though that's the surface level intention, I think Boys Town, it sounds like in your direct experience, they were doing something different where they were really interested in rehabilitation. And, and I want you to talk a little bit about the, the PRIV system and the points and how to, how that all worked and, and, and how you sort of transcended where you were coming from the street code to adopt this PRIV code. You're 100% right about that. Boys Town was very unique in many ways. And there's a joke around town. Lawyers used to call Boys Town Harvard of the juvenile justice system. That's how hot it was to get into. Mind you, at the time when I was sentenced, 98% of the kids from New York City were being sent upstate New York. I mean, hours away, damn near to Canada, to these facilities that were horrible, violent, with staff members who do not know the kids, who do not care about the kids, who aren't interested in the kids, who are not invested in the kids. And it's really hard to help someone when you don't love that person. That's what most kids coming from my circumstances were going to. I got very fortunate when I got accepted to Boys Town. First of all, it was local, so I was 15 minutes away from where I grew up in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Second of all, they had a model. The Boys Town Fidelity model is a model that pretty much identify every behavior and attach a label to that behavior and rewards that behavior accordingly. So, for example, right now, let's say I was a Boys Town kid. And there was a staff next to me. The staff would stop this conversation and say, you know what, Jim? Right now in this very moment, your ability to explain the system to light is extremely impressive. So because of that, you're going to earn a thousand points. And at the end of each day, at four o'clock, you tally all of your negative points and your positive points based off of behavior. So if you throw a spoon at another kid, that's a negative 2,000, right? Because you're trying to hurt that kid. If you curse, that's a negative 2,000. If you move without, make, without asking permission to move, that's a negative consequence. And it was annoying at, point, at times because in some ways, it's a very punitive kind of system in some ways, right? I mean, in normal circumstances, people don't necessarily operate like that. But considered where we were coming from and how far behind we were, it was the perfect system because it was able to now incentivize good behavior over bad ones. 
And so at the end of each day, you would tally all of your points and you needed 10,000 more positive points than negative points in order to have your privileges. And once you earn your privileges, that means you can have cookies, you can have juice and you can watch TV or you can go to, to the backyard to play basketball or you can go downstairs to lift weights. And if you don't have your privileges, you just have dinner, you do your chore, and then you go upstairs and read a book. So it was, as you can imagine, being 16 age boys living in a brownstone with like a husband and a wife, we wanted to have our privileges because it allows us to play and be kids. And then once you learn the system, then you also learn how to work the system, how to game the system, right? Like you would be down 2,000 points and it's 345 and you have 15 minutes to make up 3,000 points. So now you'll start hustling, right? You'll go to a staff and you'll be like, well, uh, Mr. Watkins, you know, I really love the way you're wearing the shirt right now. It looks really good on you. And that smile along with that shirt is the greatest thing I've seen in my life. And the staff will be like, you know what, Jim, that was very nice of you. You earn a thousand positive points for giving compliments, which was a skill. Then I would earn that thousand points. So now I need two more thousand points. Or I would just volunteer to do a chore and earn some points. So you learn how to hustle the system. But most importantly, the thing that I think that was really helpful with Boys Town was it forces you to delay gratification, which is hard for young people to do. Naturally, our brain have a problem delaying gratification when you're a kid. It's not even like they're fault. They can only see like in the moment where they are. So a lot of times kids make decisions and we're like, what were you thinking? The truth is they're not thinking. And that's actually natural and normal for them to do things that makes them happy in the moment. And Boys Town knew that. So they created this entire skill book around that, which the other thing it did for us was we knew how to solve issues with our fists. And in Boys Town now, that was no longer an option. You had to solve issues through communicating. And so instead of me being upset at Jonathan, fighting Jonathan, now if Jonathan makes me upset, I have to go up to him and explain to him why he made me upset. And then we have to then find a remedy by talking it out. That's what I found really interesting is that it encourages self-reflection. Even if you try to make it the fault of the staff, they'll say, look, Jim, yeah, I understand you, you're upset because you didn't follow this rule, but what are you going to do about it now? You know, that kind of thing. 100%. And it was designed that way. Um, like one of the things they did in particular is they always wanted to make sure that the kids knew they can come back. So, for example, whenever you earn a negative consequence in voice sound, you automatically get a positive back just for accepting it. So mm. if you come up to me and say, okay, Jim, just now you did not make your bed. You're going to earn a negative 5000 And I'll say to you, okay. I'll accept that. Right away, you say, okay, Jim, for accepting that negative consequence, you earn back 2500 mm -hmm. So I get half back right away just by accepting it, right? So in some ways, the system was designed in a way for you to feel like you always have a chance to come back, which is so important for kids. You don't yeah. want a kid to feel like there is no way to come back from the mistakes they've made. Oh, you don't want anything to feel that way. And Voice Sound was teaching us just that in its own ways. And it was teaching you accountability, but not in a way that was going to bury you, but in a way that you can come out of it a better person. And then you had to do a role play. You had to work on what you did wrong, how it went wrong, and what you would do next time better. 
that was all a part of you earning this negative consequence, all positive consequence. It's always a teaching moment. There's always a teaching opportunity. And the other thing that taught you is before I watch Masterclass a lot and I was watching the latest one with this hostage negotiator. And one of the things the hostage negotiator was talking about was mirroring. And the idea of mirroring is repeating what someone does to them or what they said to them. So they can hear themselves, which then allows them to tell you more. And what's funny is in Boy Santa as a kid, we used the very same tactic, but we called it positive reinforcement, which funny enough, I use with my son today, right? So if my son knocks a glass off the table and he breaks a glass, the first thing I do is not to say you've done something wrong. The first thing I do is acknowledge the, the right thing he did. Even if the right thing may not seem possible in that moment, but I would say to him, hey, Caleb, you did a good job trying to be independent just now and reaching for that glass on your own instead of asking me. But while doing so, you have to knock the glass off the table. Now, why is that important? It's important because I'm not beating up on him right away. I'm identifying the positive thing he did, even though it's in something wrong that I'm about to correct. Mm -hmm. I'm already giving him the power and the privilege to acknowledge the fact that he did something right. Your intention was good, but the the execution needs some refinement. (laughs) 100%, right? And that's the best way to teach a child, right? Because now he's not going to be afraid to do things. And we build trust with each other. And I'm not raising my voice. I'm not yelling. I'm acknowledging the right thing that he did. And then I'm giving him a little gem at the end. Do you think in the back of your mind when you're talking to your kid, do you think in terms of privs in, the, in that point system? <laughs> like, kid, you would have lost 5,000 points just there. So his mother and I actually met working for Boys Town, believe it or not. And there were a time where we would joke about we should put him on a point card as a way of trying to channel some of the very same behaviors that I learned to him. And I didn't, and the funny thing is when I was in Boy Town as a kid, I thought these things were stupid. I used to tell the staff that, you know, I'm never going to use this stupid stuff. Who, who, who the heck is going to use time management, controlling your anger, impulse control, working well with others, you know, working independently. Like what the heck is, what is that? And come to find out every day in life as an adult, you use those skills every single day even if you don't label them as such. So being in Boy Sound as a kid where those behaviors were in some ways challenged and refined was really helpful to the man that I am today. And I still use them with my son. I use them in almost every relationship I'm in. And sometimes I don't even know I'm doing it. So you were there for two years. You were sentenced for two years. You asked for a third year. So the way the juvenile just the juvenile legal system work. I try not to use the word justice when I talk about this system because there is no justice in that system for people like us. The way the legal juvenile system works is because you're a kid, technically, they don't view it as you being in the criminal legal system. You get to have decisions made for you by the system, which is the court system and legal system, the process. And a part of that process also means that if they don't feel like you're ready to go home, if they don't feel like you've been reformed, quote unquote, and you don't have the right situation to go back home to, then they have the right to keep you up until your 18th birthday. And so my first year in the system was tough. I was a really challenging kid and I was doing a lot of things wrong. So the prosecutors then has the right to take you back to court and ask the judge to give you a second year. 
right? They can make a case to the judge why you are not ready to go back to the community. Usually they sort of like um, balance it on public safety, whatever that means. And so my second year was given to me without a choice. However, the third year was when I decided myself that I wanted to stay in the, in the program a little bit longer because I realized that a lot of what I was receiving in Boystown weren't available back in my community. And I wrote about this in the book, like, where imagine being a child where you first have to risk your freedom, which you may never get back because a lot of kids don't get it back because it's a pipeline which leads them to the adult system. Imagine being a child where the basic resources that you should have had in the first place is only provided to you when you're now in the system. And one of the things I've realized early on was I needed to take advantage of this. I was in a safe neighborhood for the first time I had healthcare, for the first time I had three meals always available to me. I had a loving and, and caring family that I live with. I lived in like a pretty much healthy area. I'm a wealthy area. Um, there were books and so many things available to me. You know, I got my driver's license while I was in Boystown. I finished school. I, I learned about college for the first time while in Boystown. So I got to see another world that was available, but yet I wasn't fully welcome into that world. At least it didn't seem that way. And Boystown exposed me to that world. It's really, what I believe in is that life is truly about exposure for a lot of us, right? You can't be what you can't see. So once I got to see some of those things, I got to see a neighbor who was a doctor, a neighbor who was a lawyer, a neighbor who was a construction man, a neighbor who was this. I'm like, oh, okay, so I can get the very same things that I've, I've always wanted to a different path. And, you know, college was one of those main paths for me. And I learned about it because the woman that I lived with, who was my saving grace, Issa, she was in college at the time while she was working. And I remember she used to leave and go to school. And I was struck by the fact that she was an adult going to school. And one day I said to her, you know, where are you going? Why do you go to school? I don't understand that you're an adult. Why do adults don't go to school? She said, she laughed and she said, I'm in college. And I was like, what is that? And she said, well, how about you come to class with me tomorrow? You can come on campus. And sure enough, I went to campus with her and I remember being on campus with her and I felt liberated. I was like, holy crap, it's a whole nother world. And what I was mostly intrigued by at the time, as you can imagine, was the fact that most of the classes were outnumbered. Men, men were outnumbered in these classes. It was mostly women. And I was like, wait, how do I get this? She said, well, you know, you first have to finish your high school education or get a GED. And if you're poor, you may get financial aid. And, and if there's money left over, that money comes to you. I was like, wait, you mean to tell me there's a place I can go to that is safe, that the government can pay for? that the money left over will come to me and I'm gonna be surrounded by beautiful young women who are smart like me. I was like, where do I sign up? And she laughed and that's kind of how I got the idea of college, really. And sure enough, I started doing the work and two years later, I was literally in the same school she was in as one of her peers, it was weird. And you know, that's, that's what she wrote.
You also read a couple of books that really changed your perspective on your future. Yeah, the first book I read ever, I was about 16 going on 17. It was a book called The Path. It's about these three young men who grew up in Newark, New Jersey in similar circumstances, even harsher circumstances as I did in some ways. And they all made a pact with each other that they were going to become doctors and they were going to hold each other accountable. They were going to help each other. And these guys did not know any doctors. They didn't even know what medical school was. Um, And so they held each other accountable. They helped each other. They would leave their communities to go outside to other areas of New Jersey to walk into random doctor's offices and start just peppering them with questions. And I found that to be really inspiring. I find me living vicariously through these guys. And then the second book I picked up, which to me is the greatest book ever written by a man that I truly, truly love and honor in many ways was the autobiography of Malcolm X. That absolutely rocked and changed my life. I learned everything from Malcolm. And most importantly, I felt like Malcolm wasn't preaching from a perch. Malcolm was me. Malcolm was a kid who wasn't supposed to make it and then became literally one of the greatest leaders to ever live. Fearless, confident, intelligent, strong, brilliant. I had not ever experienced anyone who loved black people the way Malcolm did. And so his journey and his words and his actions really meant everything to me, especially at that point in my life. I wanted to be just like him. And that book really changed my life. And the third book was Dreams from My Father, which is President Obama's first book. I mean, at the time, he was just a junior senator from Illinois. Mm -hmm. And I read Dreams from My Father. And from all these books, what I got was to see people who looked like me, who had similar struggles as I did, overcome some of the greatest challenges in the world to become some of the greatest men we know. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading these guys' stories and like, man, I can do this. Like, that, that's me. I can do that. That is going to be me one day. That's actually when I promised to write a book because what their stories did for me, to me, was, again, the best gift you can give to someone. So I knew then that as soon as I get an opportunity to get out of the situation that I was in, that the first thing I would do is give back to kids what those three men gave to me. And that's exactly what I did with A Stone of Hope. At least I hope that's what I did with A Stone of Hope. Talk a little bit about, you graduate college, right? And you go to this dinner at the Italian restaurant and you literally have all of your guardian angels at the table. All these mentors, these people who have put you up overnight and saved you from this or that catastrophe. They don't necessarily know each other, but they're all sitting at the table. How did that, how did that feel in that moment? Uh, it was special. It was special because those were the people, I think, that were responsible for the man that I became. And I thought that the greatest way to celebrate my graduation, which was a big deal for me, was to have those very same people under the same roof. And I think that really helped me to see how lucky that I was and how fortunate I was and and I wanted them to see each other and I wanted them to connect because again I think that the same way negativity spread good things can also have a ripple effect and I felt that if those individuals get to meet each other and realize their relationship with me was so meaningful that I wanted them to be around other people who gave me the same thing I thought that was 
something honorable to do. And it, it just, you know, it just made me feel proud. And, and I knew that I had people who would support me regardless of what. And I wanted to build this network of those types of humans, which I am attracted to. And I hope to be one of those individuals. So that was a special day. You eventually became a counselor at Boys Town. And then next thing you know, you're speaking at a Boys Town gala. Everyone's got tuxedos on. It's a fundraiser. And you have an opportunity to share your story to an audience. I'm assuming for the first time, this audience of potential donors. Do you remember what you said and and how you felt afterwards? I remember leading up to it, there were, you know, I I wrote a speech and they were coaching me and I didn't know what to expect. And I, but I felt positive about how things were going to turn out. But I remember people putting so much emphasis and weight on this, on this gala. And that was a little weird to me in some ways, but I understood it. And when I got there, I was like, oh, okay, this is why. You know, there's a room full of very rich white liberals who get together annually to donate to this organization. And on one side of my brain, I was like, is this normal? Is this weird? What is my job here? Am I supposed to make these people feel good about themselves? You know? And then all of a sudden, I was like, you're worrying about too many things that has nothing to do with why you're here for. And I realized that I was there not because of me, but I was there because of this program that helped me that can likely help other young men like myself. So it wasn't about me. And so I got on the stage. I was nervous, but the nervousness kind of subsided after like a minute up there. And I remember a key part of that speech. I don't remember the whole thing, but I pretty much talked about my journey, how I got to Boys Town and how Boys Town helped me. And the last thing I said was, you know, many of you in this room, I said, as a matter of fact, all of you in this room, when your day come, when whoever up there sent for you and you're lying on that deathbed, the only thing you will remember is how many lives I have I impacted positively. What is it that I've done to make this world a little bit better than I found it? I told them, you know, they weren't going to be thinking about the condos, the beach house, the Bentleys, the Rolexes. None of that would matter on their deathbed. What would matter is how many lives they played a part in changing for the better. And that resonated with a lot of the people in the room that night. And I don't remember how I came up to that line. I think I was watching, you know, I was watching a few things before I gave the speech. And I read something about Denzel Washington. And Denzel was talking about um, what he had gained from the Big Brother, Big Sisters mentorship program. And he had talked about how the help he received as a kid is what guide him today to do the things that he does. And I wanted to relay that message to some of the people in the crowd and motivate them to, again, give back what they receive, um, especially for those of us who are extra privileged. Um, a lot of what we have, we like to think that we've earned them, but a lot of it we did not earn. Some of us came into some very fortunate situations, whether it's economics, whether it's neighborhood, whether it's 
a parent, an uncle, a school, a mentor, a coach, whatever it is, somebody in your life gave you something to help you to be where you are today. And I think that our number one job in society is to find that very same thing that was given to us and give it back and give it away. So being the living and breathing example of what can happen when somebody cares about you in a world where very few people care and receiving that standing ovation after your speech, did you feel like you found your mission that night? I did. That night, actually, I knew right there and then I knew what my purpose were. And that's something I've been very, very, very fortunate for. I knew my purpose at 17 years old. I cannot tell you what that means to me, like, because I know people now who are in their 40s, 50s, who are still searching for what is it that they're meant to do in, in life. And I knew that night, this was my journey. And the very same story that I was embarrassed of, I knew was the best tool that I had to open up doors. And all of a sudden now, it goes from embarrassment to strength base. I start to view the journey as strength, as me being able to overcome certain obstacles weren't some sort of deficiencies that I've had intellectually or socially, as people like to believe, but more so these were the circumstances that I was given. And I analyzed the situation I made a lot of mistakes and then finally find the best tool that I had available to me to help remedy it. And that tool at the time to me was my story. And that tool is still the same tool that I use today. I still, I'm a storyteller, you know, I'm a filmmaker, writer. And I think that stories are literally the best bridge we have to connect the unknown world to the known world. I think it's hard to hate people and dislike people when you know them. And unfortunately, since we live in a country that was designed to be segregated one of the reasons i think a lot of the issues prevail here is because we don't know each other and one way to get us to know each other is to tell each other's stories when you were hanging out with jigga and devon and all these guys on the streets could you ever have imagined that you'd be in the room with governor cuomo and mayor bloomberg and the white house and testifying before congress and brian stevens <laughs> and all of these guys even if somebody stopped you and said, hey, man, I see your future, You're gonna, this is going to happen, you never would have believed that. I still don't believe it today. <laughs> I really, believe it or not, like, it sounds weird. I still don't believe it today. You know, I talk to people all the time now who will start telling me what my future is going to be. Right? They're like, man, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. You, you know, they're all excited. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, I'm hopeful, but I don't know if these things will come true. And... I think a part of that has a lot to do with humility because I know what it's like to be on the menu rather than being at the table. And so I'm always careful to not prop myself up too much because I know that the difference between Jim and Jigga, who unfortunately was murdered at a very young age while I was incarcerated, is that I made a left when I could have made a right and there are people who stepped in my life and made sure that I had a chance to realize my full potential. And when you know that to be true, when you know where you come from, you're always leery of not getting too far ahead of that. And I also deal with a lot of survivor's guilt. You dodged about 15 landmines coming up, if not more. A lot, a lot, a lot. And I'm still dodging them today, right, as a young black man in society. So when I'm in these rooms, when I never forget when I got the call 
that I was being appointed by President Obama, you know, I thought, I thought, I thought they were tricking me. You know, I just, like, I could not believe it, man. Like, I was reading about this guy when I was a kid in the juvie. You know, I was reading about him, and then now here I am getting a call, being appointed by him and being in the room with him. And, you know, he chose A Stone of Hope as one of his top five books to read. I had meetings with his production company, and we, we, we're talking now about working on some stuff together. I mean, that whole, it's, it's bizarre, man, some of the things I've been able to do and the blessings that came my way and the world that I've been exposed to, that I have access to today. It's really, really, really weird and bizarre. I mean, things that people who came in the world with everything have not had opportunities to do, right? In, mm. in, in rooms to be in. But what I try to do like, is that I try to remember why I'm in those rooms. Not that I'm in the room, but why, right? Why I'm in the room. I'm not speaking for Jim as a 31-year-old anymore. I'm speaking for that 13, 12, 11, 10, nine, 14, 15, 17 year old who may not know where his next meal is coming from. So whenever I'm in these rooms, I try not to get too overwhelmed by the glamour and the language and the fanciness of these rooms. I try to make sure that I am amplifying the voices of the 14 year old Jim that may never get to be in this room, but yet whatever said in that room will have the most consequence on his life or her life. That's what I try to keep in mind when I'm in these rooms, more so that I'm in these rooms. And talk about preparing leaders of tomorrow. Preparing Leaders of Tomorrow is my baby. It's plot, P-L-O-T, plot of land where things grow. But in this case, we're talking about young men who were dealt the wrong hand in life. My goal is to help provide mentors to them. So plot, Preparing Leaders of Tomorrow, plotforyouth.org. What we do is we mentor at promise kids and formerly incarcerated kids. And notice I said at promise. We used to say at risk. But I think that there is a lot of power in language in the way we use it. And I think the, the standards we set for our kids, they usually meet them. So that's what it is. And it's a mentoring organization that I co-founded with Marty, Christine, and Edwin Raymond, who you know very well, mm-hmm. uh, who's my childhood friend and currently a lieutenant with the NYPD now. We founded the organization because... I realized that what I was given, the thing that meant the most to me and the man that I am today was mentorship, was, you know, those people who stepped into my life and say, okay, kid, I'm going to love you until you learn how to love yourself. They realized that I was hurt. And because I was hurt, I was hurting other people, right? As one of my good friends, Dr. Gore, often says, hurt people hurt people. I wanted to create an organization that can provide mentors and caring and loving adults for young people who may not have them readily available, believe it or not. There are thousands of kids who do not have a positive role model, a positive figure in their lives. And numbers and statistics and everything has told us that when a kid has a positive role model and mentor in their life, they're more likely to graduate school. They're less likely to get in trouble with the law. They're more likely to respect their parents and loved ones. They're more likely to go to college. 
Um, they're more likely to hold a job. They're more likely to become a productive member of society. We know this to be true. You said something profound in the book. You said people just say, oh, they should just say no. But you have to say no over and over and over to get out of those situations. Like every moment of every day, you're because you're being tempted all the time. 100%, right? So the idea of just saying no, or, you know, people say, well, just stay out of trouble. Why can't they just do this, 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 and that? Those are people who do not know what it's like to be at a very dark place as a young person. Um, it's never that easy. Again, as you said, especially when you have to say no over and over and over and over again. At what point do you break and say yes? And the truth is, most kids break and do say yes at some point. And so I think that a lot of times adults need to be reminded of what it was like for them to be a kid. Right, because I don't care who you are, including President Obama, who sniffed some coke, got drunk, and did a bunch of shit when he was younger, and he was lucky enough he got second chances and he became President Obama. Right, so I just happen to believe that who we are today is not who we're going to be tomorrow, and that is especially true for kids. I have a special place in my heart for kids. Not nothing, nothing against adults, but kids are my reasons for being here because I feel like there are vessels that you can always and constantly pour into. And even if you don't get to see it, but they are retaining it at some point in their lives. And so that's what we've created this nonprofit organization to do. We know it's not going to solve all the issues, but again, if one more young man can have a positive role model like you in their lives, I believe that young man has a better chance to be who we want that young man to be. How do people get involved in plot? You go to plot for youth, P L O T F O R youth.org. Join us as a supporter, as a mentor. You may have a skill that we can use as we go forward, or we can donate to our causes. We mostly fund by individuals giving us 50 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever they have. We have a strong board. We're looking to grow, and we are growing, and we're still providing services now virtually even more so ever than before, because the kids who will be most impacted by COVID-19, believe it or not, well, as you know, are going to be poor black and brown kids. They're going to fall behind even more so in the school system. So PLOT is trying to make up for some of that lost time and provide positive leisure activities for them to stay involved in and provide them with different outlets and resources and things they can use to better themselves. Those who are listening, can just go to plotforyouth.org and check us out and the work we do. And your book is called A Stone of Hope. Stone of Hope. hope. I'll tell you a quick story on how we named the book. We weren't, we weren't as forward thinking as you are, like with your book and your title. You know, I'm a little bit more in the back. I'm trying to catch up to you. So one day I was advocating for this particular policy in Washington, D.C. It was a bill called the Better Option for Kids Act. And what it was designed to do is remove money from the legal system, the prison system, and place that money in the school system. And the bill was sponsored by Senator Chris Murphy and Congressman Bobby Scott. And I went up to Capitol Hill to advocate and to speak in front of the committee. And the bill died in the committee. They didn't even make it out of the committees. And I remember being frustrated and angry. You know, I was young. I was, what, 23 years old? And I could not understand how 
these guys did not care about kids. And out of frustration, I said, you know what? Let me go ahead and walk to Dr. King's monument. It's the first time I'd seen it. I walked there. As soon as I arrived, overlooking that, 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 that tundra right down on Capitol Hill and, and that beautiful water, I turned and I saw the monument. And right on the side of it, there's a quote that says, out of a mountain of despair, a stone of hope. Mm. And that was one of Dr. King's uh, most famous speeches. And I just wrote about that. I remember I went home. I was on a flight going home, and I wrote about it. And I wrote about the entire day. And I sent, the, sent it to my editor. And my editor was like, oh, I know what the book is going to be called. I said, what? He said, it's right there in your, in your writing, A Stone of Hope. And I was like, oh, actually, I like that. And that's how the title came about, Stone of Hope. I love that. Last question, man. How do you define success these days? I actually struggle with that word. I try not to use the word success Mm -hmm. because the truth is I don't know what success is. And I don't think that the way we define it in this country is the right way. I think what we define as success is the things that we can see, things that are materialistic, things that are very much capitalistic by nature. So I struggle with the words overall, but to answer your question, the way I define success is whether I am being my best self at every moment. If I'm with my son, am I being kind, gentle? Am I paying attention to him? Am I asking him the right right questions? If so, then that's success to me in that moment. If I'm connecting with you right now, am I paying attention? Am I making sure my phone works right? Am I showing you the love that you're showing me back to me? That's success. The ability to be in the moment and give the best version of yourself to whatever it is that you're doing is how I define success nowadays. And it's very different for me than it was when I was a young man. Sitting in the park, man, just a breeze blowing and I'm safe. To me, that's, that's a successful day. Walking by, having a beautiful conversation with a homeless guy and I learned something new from him, to me, that's success. It's very much different for me than I think I see as people describe this term success. Yeah, I love that. I think it's also important, you know, when you look at the the spectrum of your life experiences and hindsight, a lot of the things that would be considered quote unquote bad are the things that you actually get up and you get may even get paid thousands of dollars to get up and speak about right now. So it's like, where does that fit in the archetype of what a successful life actually looks like? You know, you can't even judge that until you see how the whole thing plays out, you know? And you hit it right, right on the head, man. And, and, and again, when you've lived the life that I've lived, that is so full, so rich and so nuanced and long, even within 31 years, it's really just hard for you to to define success in like one word because it changes. It changes and it becomes more fluid and it becomes less identifiable in some ways, right? Because what this country defines and is able to count as success, it may not be success at all where That's I'm right. from. So I, you know, one thing I'm learning is to live by, to live by our own terms and not the terms which the very same people who did not want us to succeed set for us. 
And I think once you begin to live by your own terms, that's true freedom. And that happens when you actually know yourself. And again, mm-hmm. I've been very fortunate to do some of that work. And so knowing my purpose in life, which as I told you earlier, I found at a young age, really helps me to define success for myself rather than what the world tells me success is. I love that. And I would also like to offer a few reflections of my own, having gotten a chance to converse with you about your your life. And I like to tie it back to childhood. And I think back to you on those muddy fields (laughs) with your homemade soccer balls that were made of the trash, essentially, that you would collect and how that is expressing through your life now where you take kids that society has essentially discarded and you make something useful out of their lives. You help them to see the fun and to connect with others and to be productive citizens in their lives. And your trademark thing that you put on your balls, 1804, which signified liberation. You have an understanding that by doing so, by making them useful, by making them productive, by helping them see their own value, that is the key to their own individual liberation so that they can become the leaders for tomorrow. So I want to acknowledge you, man, for your courage, your bravery, your persistence, and your willingness to not ever give up. And and all that you're doing right now for everyone else and using your experiences, using your life story to be an example of what was possible, to be a stone of hope for others. And I hope that the people listening to your story get a chance to read your book because there's so much, I've got all these pages of notes and there's so much we didn't talk about that I, if it was just you and I having a dinner somewhere, we'd be sitting down for three hours because there's so much I want to hear about, but you know, just Literally every other page, you could have gone to Rikers Island. You could have been, you know, it could have been a lot worse than what it was. I was blown away by how many third and fourth and 10th chances you seem to have in your life. And it just reminded me that we're being guided towards something a lot bigger than we can even fathom for ourselves. And there's no such thing as a lost soul. There's only that part in the journey that's going to ultimately lead to some sense of liberation. And it's our job to do what we can to help out. So thank you for that, my friend. Thank you, brother. And uh, I mean, I appreciate you, man. As I've always said, you inspire me. Everything about you, there's this light about you and your openness from the first time we met, the work you do, your gentleness and your love is palpable. So I'm really honored to just be able to be in conversation with you. And hopefully I get to have you be a guest on my podcast at some point in the future. A hundred percent. I just really, really, really appreciate you, man. And you motivate me and you, you challenge me in a way to, to be better and to be more vulnerable and to be open and to, um, to be receptive of the things around me, believe it or not, just by watching you and the work you do. So I'm truly honored, brother. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you very much, man. And uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to connect very soon in person. We will, man. I hope things will eventually improve and I'll make my way to you or we meet somewhere. Beautiful. Thank you, brother. 
Thank you for listening to my interview with Jim St. Germain. I was so excited when I saw that President Obama listed Jim's book, A Stone of Hope, which details his life story as one of his top reads a couple of years ago. So make sure to check that out. It's sold everywhere you can buy books and you can get more information about Jim's nonprofit plot in the show notes below. And if you want to hear more stories like Jim's, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and check out the archive. You're going to find a lot of other interviews with incredible people who've overcome all kinds of challenges in order to start their movement. And what I found after interviewing all of these change makers is so refreshing. They're not superhuman. They feel just like us. They hurt just like us. They make mistakes. And usually their biggest obstacle somehow, some way played a role in helping them define their movement. For Jim, it was his environment. But what about you? What is your biggest obstacle and how can you use it to help you find your purpose? While you're figuring that out, please make sure to rate and review the podcast. Those 30 seconds you spend doing that are going to help countless other listeners discover these inspirational stories as well. And don't forget, there's a transcript of our entire interview on my website, lightwatkins.com tunnel, along with a link to sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email, which is a short and sweet daily motivational message from me that you'll get each morning at 6 a.m. Pacific time. And if you have any feedback or suggestions about the email or about the podcast, text it to me. Here's my number, 323-405-9166. I want to hear from you, so make sure you send me a message. Thanks again for listening, and I can't wait to see you back here next week with another story from the end of the tunnel. you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.